Welcome to Mosaic Midweek, a series of videos designed to help you follow Jesus. As apprentices of Jesus, we want to be with Jesus, we want to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. Well, right now, we are walking through the Gospel of John, and now we find ourselves in John chapter 3. So I would love to encourage you to grab your Bible, grab your scripture journal, and let's dive in to John chapter 3. Well, if you missed it on Sunday, Josh Olson did a fantastic job sharing a message from God on John chapter 3. Well, now the rest of this week, our encouragement, our hope is that we'll spend some time meditating on this chapter, rereading it a number of times to get it into our hearts and our souls. So for this week, I just wanted to explore a few other things in this chapter that Josh wasn't able to hit on Sunday morning. Like I said, there's so much beauty and depth in the Gospel of John that there's no way we can hit it all each Sunday morning. So in our Mosaic midweeks, in our small groups, in your own personal prayer time and, and journaling, we want to be diving in to uh, the chapters that we're covering and see you know, what other nuggets maybe uh, that uh, we weren't able to get to on Sunday mornings. So let's dive into John three right now. Well, John is writing this gospel of his. It's one of four gospels. There are Matthew, Mark, Luke, who, which are called the synoptic gospels. And they're kind of like, if you flip down the news, you have ABC, CBS, NBC. And then John is kind of its own thing. It'd be like if you turn to the BBC for your news. And we've seen so far in John chapter one, that he starts this beautiful hymn that Jesus is the Word of God that has always existed, that everything that was created was created through Him. And we see the greatness, the glory of God through Jesus, which is God clothed in flesh, but then He moved into our neighborhood. He tabernacled among us so that we could receive grace upon grace. We've seen the glory of God clothed in flesh so that we could receive grace upon grace upon grace. What a beautiful message. And then in John 2, Jesus goes to this wedding with his disciples. And at that wedding, he shows his glory. He pulls, pours out his grace right there by saving some Jewish teenagers from having egg on their face from their embarrassment by this generous gift of, of new wine that is amazing. And it's good wine. And Jesus shows that now what has come through him is vastly superior to what all has come before the Old Testament scriptures, the old way of doing religion. We said that, you know, in the story of God, it ends not just with us floating in some clouds playing harps, but no, heaven comes to earth and the new or heavens and new earth. And there is a wedding feast between Jesus the groom and the bride of Jesus, his church, and all will celebrate as we are filled with Jesus' new life, his, his celebratory joy. And that is what Jesus came to bring, life and joy that is only found through him. But to get to the wedding, Jesus is going to have to get through the cross. In order for us to drink deeply of his joy, first, he is going to have to drink the cup of the wrath of God that is poured out on him so that all may be saved. 
And it's this beautiful first sign of Jesus that shows who he is. Well, now in chapter three, we're going to see Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class of the Jews. He's going to come at nighttime in the dark to see Jesus. Spoiler alert, we're going to see next chapter, Jesus talked to someone in the brightest of days. We have darkness, next chapter, light. In this chapter, Nicodemus, powerful man, very knowledgeable. Uh, that Jesus, the message of Jesus is for the, the, the beautiful, the powerful, the talented. Next chapter, we're going to see Jesus appear to someone who is powerless, someone who's been broken, someone who has been hurting. That the message of Jesus is both for the powerful and the powerless. John is so amazing. Well, at night, this this uh, wise, this uh, smart uh, ruler of the Jewish people, Nicodemus, he, he goes and he finds Jesus. And let's read on in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, this symbol of honor, teacher, come and teach me. Nicodemus would have been one of the smartest men in his country, but he's showing respect and honor to Jesus. He probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. He knew the word of God. So Jesus speaks very plainly to him in a way that he probably wouldn't speak to anyone else because Nicodemus knew so much. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We've heard about you turning water into wine, 180 gallons of it. What a magnificent wedding gift. These other signs that Jesus is doing. Surely God is with you. And Jesus cuts right to the chase and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, like many of us, he's thinking, yeah, I'd love to be born again. I'd love to have a new man birthed within me. I don't want to be the person that I was. Perhaps you felt that way too, that I, I wish I could be someone new. But how is this going to happen? Nicodemus is saying, I can't go back into my mother's womb. That, that doesn't work. So, so how can this be possible? Jesus, again, just cutting to the chase says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean, born of water and Spirit? Well, during this time, we see John was baptizing people with water at the end of chapter 2. This is the baptism of repentance. Repentance is that word teshuva that means you've been wandering around perhaps in the forest and then you look down and you notice you've gotten off the path. And so you have to turn around and get back to where you're supposed to be. So many times in our life, God has a plan for us, but then we look down and we realize we've, we're off the path that God has for us. And so I need to go and turn that way to get back to where God wants me to go. That's what repentance is. It's, it's not just believing in Jesus. It's saying, you know what? I once was living this way, and now I'm going to turn it all around and follow what Jesus has for me. And so until there's repentance, we cannot receive the regeneration that only comes through the Spirit. How are we made new? It only happens through the regeneration of the Spirit that is preceded by repentance and faith in Jesus. Jesus goes on to say, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Perhaps they're outside and they're standing on some darkened streets in the middle of the night. The, the moon is shining and Nicodemus is there because he doesn't want the other uh, powerful men of the Jewish council, which is kind of crossed between the Senate and the Supreme Court, to know that he's talking with Jesus, this radical rabbi. And perhaps the wind is blowing and, and they feel it on their faces. And Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. 
and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. That is the only way to new life is to be regenerated through the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus says, how can these be? And Jesus is like, you are the teacher of Israel. You're one of those brilliant men in all of Israel. You are a gifted teacher of the ruling class, and yet you don't understand these things? He goes on then to share this, this kind of bizarre story that we're like, what is this? In verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Eric, what is this story about Moses and a serpent? Well, in the Old Testament, the, the, the primary story is that God chose a people and he set them apart, but then they were in slavery and bondage for 400 years and God led them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and he delivered them in the Exodus. But it took some time to get them to the promised land and while they were wandering, the people of God, the Israelites, they started to grumble and complain. So what did God do? God sent these fiery serpents to be among them, a representation of sin, just like in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes and leads Adam and Eve away from God to say, hey, do you really trust God? Do you think God's holding out on you? And our first parents, Adam and Eve, they're like, you know, I think God is holding out on me. I'm not going to trust him to know what's best for me. I'm going to take and eat of this fruit. And their eyes were opened. So now these same serpents come. Had this representation of their sin and, and it bites them and causes fever and, and death. And God says to Moses, you know, form a symbol of their sin, a brown serpent, lift it up and everyone who looks on it will be saved. Doesn't matter what they've done or what's been done to them. Doesn't matter how many times they've been bitten, how much venom is in them, they will be saved. And it's a major, amazing picture that Jesus is now talking about that in the same way he is going to be lifted up on the cross, that those who look on him will be saved. He goes on to, to share probably the most famous verse in all of scripture, for God so loved the world. He didn't just have some kind of passive thoughts, but he loved the world, all of us, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What an amazing promise that those who experience repentance, who turn from their sins and have the regeneration of the spirit will be saved because God so loved the world that he gave his only son in the same way as that Old Testament scripture that the serpent was lifted up, that all who looked on it were saved, that all who looked at the cross and at Jesus and put their hope and trust in him will be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done, what has been done to you, how much sin and darkness is in you. Jesus is the light and he can save you. So what does that mean for us? Well, as we get to the end of chapter three, we see that John the Baptist, who pointed to Jesus in John chapter 2 as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb who freely lays down his life for us so that we could be saved. Well, now we see in the same river, Jesus' disciples are starting to baptize people and invite them into this new way of life, this way of repentance, so that we can receive the regeneration of their spirits and to be born again. And John's disciples are noticing that their rabbi, John, who was, you know, super popular that at the time people thought he was the reincarnation of Elijah, but he's kind of losing 
some influence and some power as Jesus' disciples are baptizing people and, and their congregation is growing. But how does John respond? He says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He has a right understanding of who Jesus is and who he is. He knows it's not about him, but the story is about Jesus. And that is the same response that we should have, that it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. We have a part to play, but our part is to point to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, to invite people into repentance, not just some kind of belief in Jesus, but actually to turn from their sins, to turn towards Jesus in this act of repentance, to leave the old way of life behind so that you can experience regeneration in the Spirit. Do we have that same attitude as John the Baptist? that he must increase and I must decrease. As we walk with Jesus, one of the signs of maturity is that less and less we don't get easily offended. Whether that's in person or social media, that we say it's not about us. It's not about our own personal preferences. It's not about the music in church or did the pastor preach a deep enough message or is the seating comfortable enough or whatever that might be. He must increase and I must decrease. It's about Jesus. We point to him so that all may be saved. Oh, what a beautiful thing. In the dark of night, as Jesus meets with this powerful, brilliant man, he's not sure what to think. And Nicodemus walks away at that time. Later, we're going to see, after Jesus dies on the cross, Nicodemus goes with Joseph of Arimathea to take care of the body. And eventually, Nicodemus gets it. But in this moment, he doesn't. And spoiler alert, we're going to see next chapter that instead of the powerful, the religious, the ones who should have been the perfect ones to spread the message of Jesus, God's going to use someone else to spread the message of Jesus, someone you would never expect. Pretty much the exact opposite of this Jewish man who had all the right pedigree, all the right connections, all the right opportunities. In the same way, I love that God uses th those that we wouldn't expect. And so wherever you are watching or listening to this, may you know that Jesus can use you, but you have to choose to decrease so that he may increase. This week, may you know that God so loved you, that he so loves the world, that he gave his only son, and that those who repent and turn and follow Jesus will receive that regeneration that comes only through the Spirit that brings new life so that it's not about us, but that we may decrease so that Jesus may increase. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.